1: This is the Investing Power Hour on Chit Chat Money, number sixty-seven, and it's a special one today because we actually have three guests. Um, two have been on the show before. One we need to get on the show to do an interview on a financial stock sometime soon. It is Jason Hall, Travis Hoiam, and Matt Frankel. Guys, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks. This is awesome. Glad to be back on. Yeah. All this right.
1: Yeah. And uh, guys, you're on for a special, I guess, event, an announcement. What is this announcement and what do you guys have going on in Alexander, Virginia, Alexandria, Virginia on August 18th?
2: You guys want me to go first? Yeah, I'll go first here. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting. This is something we've, a lot of us have talked about, Travis, you and I've talked about doing something like this before, I think the most But the idea is to create opportunities for regular investors. Because like all of us, every single one of us on this, at some point, we were just a guy that was trying to figure out how to buy stocks, a guy that was trying to figure out how to manage money, how to make the right decisions, all of that kind of thing. And doing the podcast, the smattering I do with Jeff, um, he is is still like the regular guy. He has a full-time job. Uh, working for a school district. And this is the thing that he does on the side. There are so many people like that, that they just, they don't have access like all of we do. We can DM each other on Twitter. Half of us have each other's phone numbers. We can talk. And there just aren't a lot of opportunities to really engage, not just with us, right? The, The experts and the people in the know, but also just to engage with other people that maybe you have proximity to, that you just don't have in your regular life. So what we what we've decided to do? There's a group of us that are going to be in Alexandria, Virginia, on August 18th. It's a Friday. I got the date right, guys. Yeah, August 18th, and from two to six, we have reserved um, a, a private spot um, at um, oh goodness, and now the name's falling out of my head here. Um, Lost Boy Cider, which is in Alexandria, Virginia. It's easy to find. And the, we're calling it Money Collaborative 2023. If you go to moneycollaborative.com, thank you, Travis Hoyam, for putting the site together. You can reserve. Now, here's the thing. We have room for about 50 people at this event. And you have to have places to do this. And nothing's free anymore. Nothing is cheap. So it's $100 a person. But what do you get for $100? bucks? you are going to get Travis talking about asymmetric investing and his process to find asymmetric opportunities. He'll talk more about that today. You're going to get Matt Frankel, who is an absolute expert in financials, real estate. He is a value investor. He owns real estate himself. He is a chartered financial planner. He is a CFP. He is a real money expert. You're going to get me and 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 uh, Jeff Santoro. We're going to record an episode of The Smattering Live in person. And if you've I think I'm I'm guessing a few people that are watching this have probably heard our show. So we're going to get to do it live. We're going to have Tyler Crow, who does a lot of the YouTube videos with me. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have Lou Whiteman who does his fits and starts um, uh, blog, which is a great resource for people, how to think about investing and how to manage themselves. So you're going to get proximity to all of us. We're going to share some of our best ideas. We're going to do a lot of interaction. We're going to have food. It's Lost Lost Boy Cider, so there's going to be plenty of cider flowing. And uh, we're really, really excited about it. Travis?
3: Yeah, I think this is really an opportunity for us to have the kind of discussions that we have on a semi-regular basis with a larger group of people, get feedback, and sort of get a little bit more meta. The content that we create on a daily basis, whether it's an article. You know, even I, I did a, a spotlight of a stock yesterday. That was 2,500 words. I'm still just scratching the surface of what I think about that business, the process that goes into finding those kinds of investments, how I think about the strategy of of any given business or industry. So we can have longer form discussions that are maybe a little bit more high level that don't necessarily make sense for a specific article or video. And I think that's what's really really fun and interesting. You know, I did one of these almost a decade ago now, and it was just fascinating the things that people wanted to pick my brain about, um, and I'm not necessarily going to know what those things are until we get there. Uh, and, and that's part of the fun of it because a lot of times these discussions are very one-sided. We're creating content. People are consuming content, but unless you send me a DM or a comment in YouTube or something like that, I don't necessarily know what you're taking out of anything that I'm producing. So this is a this is kind of a way for us to get some feedback. Um so I think that's what I'm really looking forward to is having a little bit more of a personal connection with everybody that joins us.
4: I want to loop Matt in here as well. I think listeners are probably familiar with Travis, familiar with Jason. Uh this is a good chance to plug that Travis's uh pitch on GM is up 30% since he came on the
2: show. Um and then <laughs> Jason's been on a couple of times but I guess Matt <laughs> we will never hear the end of that from Travis. I just want to say
3: hey, that if, if if it becomes an asymmetric stock, I'll just uh I'll just come on once a week and toot my own horn.
4: <laughs> I guess listeners might not know as much about you Matt. Um, can you maybe provide some background kind of how did you get into the field of investing? What do you do today? What's kind of
0: your investing ethos, I guess? Yeah, uh, my internet connection hasn't been great today so I sorry if i fall out at all um it's been good so no worries
2: can you hear us matt
1: maybe not i jinxed it
2: just, <laughs> you brett you broke his audio i know
1: hmm. i definitely jinxed it uh yeah i can't hear you matt. no audio yeah oh, all right it sounds well, like you
2: can't hear us okay
1: well just yeah Uh, Keep it rolling. We do these
4: shows live for anyone that's listening on the podcast. So it's a little chaotic, but
1: But either way, we'll give a, we'll give a pitch with Matt. He's an expert on financials. He's been on industry or was on industry focus on the financial show for a long time. I used to listen to that all the time. Um, I mean, definitely check out all the stuff that he's been doing. I mean, yeah, I mean, really, really knowledgeable about that stuff. Anything else, Ryan, do do we want to pitch for Matt before we get into the
2: show?
4: no i i uh i've been clamoring to get him on the show um but he's a busy guy so um. i'll pitch his
2: youtube channel just real quickly go just matt frankel cfp youtube just google that and you'll find it great content great content one of the things he does really well is he just he 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 just has really easy to understand conversations about the things about the companies that compelling if you're somebody that's trying to understand valuation better and thinking about finding value Matt is going to help you be a better investor.
0: I switched networks. There Can he you hear me now? Okay. We were, we were giving you a good pitch, though. So. <laughs> uh, awesome, man. Yeah. I appreciate that. No, I'm a certified financial planner. I've been um, writing for The Motley Fool and other, uh, the other uh, websites since, gosh, I'm going to age myself right here, since 2010 um, after a career as a high school teacher. So um, I, I call myself a reform teacher. Uh, but I decided I started doing this kind of on the side while I was still a math teacher. Um, I, I was a statistics professor at the college level and kind of really discovered that I loved, you know, applying my love of teaching to investing, which has always kind of been a hobby of mine. Ended up becoming a certified financial planner a few years back, I guess, wow, seven years ago at this point. Time flies, you know. Um we, you know, Jason and I both didn't have gray hair. Um, you know, back when we started this game and, you know, now we do now, we're the old guys in the, in the, in the room, um, <laughs> but no, thank you for the nice plug. Um, I do have my own uh, YouTube channel, Matt Frankel CFP. Um, I don't have, I haven't thought of a cool name. If anyone thinks of a cool brand name for me, please let me know, but I am just no, keep Frankel it, CFP keep it now. the
3: same. Keep the <laughs> thumbnails, the same, keep the, the name, the same. It is so on
0: brand. It's, it's <laughs> working. It. It's working. <laughs> I love it. Hey, I, it, it's, it's been going pretty well. Um, well. Hopefully people will come out to see us, but no, J- and Jason's absolutely right. I, I feel like it's kind of, especially over the past three years or so, become kind of a lost art of getting, getting together in person and really picking each other's brain. And there's only so much of that you can do over, over YouTube, uh, not to you know, knock YouTube, but as we saw about five minutes ago, it's not a perfect system. Um, a lot gets lost in translation, lost in the shuffle. And, you know, how many times have you gotten off a YouTube call and you thought of a question you wanted to ask the other person just afterwards and, and things like that? And um, I'm looking forward to connecting with a lot of people in person. I know Jason and I were both in Omaha for the Berkshire Hathaway meeting and got to see some of our listeners in person there. And it was in my mind, I don't know about Jason, I was there for four days. That was the most valuable experience out of the four days.
2: Yeah, absolutely was. And honestly, I think that kind of planted the seeds for, for me for, for doing this. And then as Travis and I have talked more about it, it's, yeah, this is pretty excited about it.
4: Yeah.
1: And one more time, it is money collaborative. We'll put the website link for anyone in the show notes or, and in the comment section, just so anyone can get that specific link. Uh, Alexandria, Virginia, August 18th. So a little over a month from now. So anyone in that area, I mean, it's a perfect way, perfect place to go. Uh, I'm sure Matt, a lot we've, of
4: uh, we've, got some, we've got some comments in here, too, in the Uh-oh. YouTube chat that say, uh, frankly speaking, would be a, a good <laughs> Ooh, YouTube name. Good.
2: Yeah. I like that. You've got to copyright good. that now, like if you're literally not going to the copyright. Yeah. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best
1: <laughs> All right. Well, uh hey, let's let's hit some news topics. Uh Ryan, did you want to talk to Activision Blizzard or I don't know.
4: Yeah, we can start there. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on it, but basically it looks like so the the appeal from the FTC is not uh it's not going to work out, I guess. Um was terrible. Courts, yeah, courts basically just <laughs> uh gave them the approval to go through with the deal. The only holdup and I'm not hundred percent sure on how the uh how it functions in the UK, but they kind of have to, I guess, evaluate the merger one more time. Um the CMA, which is the competition and markets competition for markets authority in the UK, basically protested or or uh, appealed against the deal a couple of months ago and now they're kind of looking like they're going to revise that. Um, so the stock's up, looks like the deal is going to go through. I guess we've, Brett and I have owned this. We have owned Activision in and out at just the worst times um, throughout its history. But uh, yeah, I guess that's, any that's closing sure. thoughts here? Do you, think, do you think it makes Microsoft a better business? Do you think it actually changes the video game landscape at all?
1: Yeah, Travis, it seems like you followed this. Do you have any thoughts on it?
3: Microsoft is going to have to create a streaming business. I mean, that's the point of this, right? That that they had to get the content not only from their own studios, but then acquire another major studio like Activision Blizzard to create the Game Pass streaming structure that they're, they're trying to build out to compete with Sony because they haven't been able to beat Sony In the console wars uh i think that is basically over and at this point i don't see anything changing that i mean we're basically going to have sony be the high-end console then you have nintendo as kind of the you know niche doing nintendo type things and then you know this is a perfect example of something that happens on the internet called the smiling curve where you have the big platform companies have a ton of power the small niche companies have a bunch of opportunity um, you know, so this is like the small indie developers who can now pick and choose where they want to put their stuff, but they can have a staff of five, ten developers and, and build a game. The ones that are kind of stuck, and this is what I think is most interesting about this deal actually closing, is what happens to EA and Take-Two? Because now they're in the middle. You know, they're probably too big to get acquired by Sony or Microsoft, so they're, they're out of the platform side. They're too big to be a niche player. So that's, what's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Cause I I don't think it's certain that Microsoft is going to be successful in this streaming gaming business. They might be. Um, I think it's probably pretty certain that Sony is just going to kind of keep doing what it's doing in dominating the console business. Um, But those companies that, you know, are really big names are just kind of stuck in the middle. You look at their financials and they're, they're not great. Yeah. the, I think I want to hit on that point as well
1: as the other game publishers that are still out there. I mean, the big ones are EA and Take-Two, but there's Ubisoft, a few others. Um, there's a lot in Japan, I guess, that are of a decent size. There's Capcom, which has been very successful. Their stocks all went up on this deal, or at least on the FTC's decision. And I think investors were projecting that now would be open season for you know these companies to get acquired. But I think Travis makes a great point where okay, Sony's not going to acquire these because they're already even more, you know, they're already doing the stuff that they're telling or trying to argue against for Microsoft. Microsoft's not going to be able to acquire them because they have Activision Blizzard. I mean, who's going to acquire these companies now? Who, who Who's the one that makes sense? Is it... Luna. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, you mean uh, Amazon's
4: cloud gaming oh, thing? Boy. Oh, I boy. Saying. I
1: mean, I was going to say big tech could make <laughs> sense, but it seems like they've all been pulling out of, except Microsoft, obviously. Uh, pulling out of the gaming market. I don't, I mean, is there, a, a, you know, a realistic acquire for these publishers? Because it seems like investors think with the stocks up like 5% on the news that, um, I don't know. Jason, you have any thoughts? I saw so you mute there.
2: Yeah. I, I want to circle back to Microsoft real quick. I think this is important. Um, historically, Microsoft's been really bad at big acquisitions, um, but not because Microsoft is bad at big acquisitions because everybody's big acquisitions. I think that's important. bad at big acquisitions. They almost never really do what anybody promised that they would do. I think that's important to remember. Um, I have a ton of faith. I don't own Microsoft stock and I probably never will. It's just not the kind of company that I buy, but I have a ton of, of faith in Satya Nadella. Um, I, I will say if there is a manager of a very large company that could generate some value out of this it is nadella and and i think the reason where i think it could struggle though is because it doesn't fit inside like really the enterprise obviously is that's microsoft's bread and butter they're trying to build something like that for the consumer side i just don't know that they're going to be successful at doing it right um i I think that's the biggest question i've got when it comes to all of the other ones it's almost uninteresting to me because the industry has gotten so mature at this point that besides an Amazon, who, again, this is an ecosystem company, maybe they go after a, a take-two, even though EA would make more sense because there's a more broad portfolio.
1: Or or meta Meta can make sense for Oculus, although, yeah, again, no, that's, that's, that's still that's, been stagnating. But, yeah. but
3: let's just burn more money.
1: Yeah, but that,
2: exactly. I, mean, but I think that's kind of the point. I think Amazon has kind of gone through that period. And it's like, they're really like, Andy, uh, what's his the CEO's name? Andy. Jassy. Jassy. He's. I mean, he's. Everything they're doing is focused on generating operating leverage and making money, right? So I don't see them making a big multi-billion-dollar buy, even though these are across the cycle, right? Of their of their their game release dates, these are really profitable businesses. I just don't know that they necessarily create the kind of value that any of these big guys are looking for. And there's just more interesting things to think about for me.
4: Yeah, I. I agree, and I've, the. Go ahead, run. I was gonna say it's. I think some of the the brands that some of the big publishers have, like um, Call of Duty, FIFA, you know, any any of the big titles, um, Grand Theft Auto, those are very durable, and I think they can generate a lot of cash. But given that the space is becoming more competitive, even for AAA games or console games, the building blocks are there, like Travis said for indie developers to to build something that competes with this. um i think fall guys was an indie developer probably you know at the end of the day ea and take two they're competing for time spent i don't know if it's the best i used to think well these brands are so durable just own them and they'll generate more cash but it's it's starting to feel less and less predictable because development talent is so expensive like ea We were talking about this last week, I think, Brett, but EA, their, their hit title is FIFA and it really, it's FIFA ultimate team that it's diverse, but mostly the FIFA ultimate team is their biggest driver. They,
2: well, they're losing the FIFA name, right? So they're gaining a little more control over it, I think. Right.
4: Yeah. And then I don't think it'll make much of a difference, but the, um, that was the biggest driver of their business four years ago. And it's grown double digits every single year. And then this year, I think it grew. Engagement or bookings like 31%, partly because of uh, the World Cup driving engagement in soccer again, but or, or football, wherever you are. Um, and if you would have told me that that business is that their main cash cow is going to uh, grow double digits every year for the next five years and cash flow is going to be stagnant, it would have, you know, I probably wouldn't have believed you at the time, but I think that kind of it's a testament to how competitive these markets are getting and you got to pay a lot for development talent and it's hard to build a successful game
1: yeah this is something that me and ryan debate a lot i kind of fall on the other side where that yeah they're low growth and you gotta buy it at the right price but these are really really i think very predictable brands at least at the top end i think whatever you call it fifa or as what we're calling it now ea sports fc or with take twos businesses like uh Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption I mean mainly Grand Theft Auto Nintendo you have a few in there Activision Blizzard Call of Duty is a bit strange because they really really juiced that title um I think they'll still be around and be the dominant brands 10 years from now uh but the growth is really the big question as Jason mentioned there on um the maturity of the console market specifically we have a copy here that said uh you know on the acquisition front um from Kelly saying that in college, I had a class that went over exactly how Microsoft overpaid for Skype. So I think that's an example there that that acquisition probably made sense at the time. But in these industries, you know, so much is unpredictable. And I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that this is probably a bad deal for Microsoft, because honestly, even though it went through all this FTC stuff about monopolization, that was a lot of baloney. And I don't think this is going to change their position in that industry whatsoever. But before we go to a new topic, Travis, it
3: looks like maybe you have any final thoughts there. I I I just wanted to comment on your paying the right price. I started following Activision Blizzard because I think it was trading for about nine times earnings. This would have been like the early 2010s. That was really compelling to me. Any of these companies at twenty five. 30, 40 times earnings is an absolute no-go for me. And and to your point about, you know, is, is Microsoft able to generate value? Like you're right, like they are gonna have to dominate the streaming gaming space, and then also get a whole bunch of, you know, cloud Azure kind of business as a result, and insert AI, whatever, whatever. The, the, there's a lot of, and then, and then, and then to make this a success. We don't even know if cloud,
1: Gaming, how long it's going to take for that to, you know, yeah, become a knows. viable consumer product? Let's go to another entertainment company. Uh, this is my topic because it came out yesterday, another news report. And it's basically what's up with Disney's executive suite, which is really what's up with Bob Iger. Uh, the report, or I guess they did a filing yesterday that the Disney board decided to keep Bob Iger as the CEO until 2026. Uh, I think that's really it. Like, uh, anyone follow this company closely? And I kind of think, you know, does this change anything about Disney? Do you want Bob Iger around um, Jason? Any thoughts? or?
2: Yeah, it's, 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 this one's so tough. And I think it confounds a lot of people because if you just start with Disney itself and you think about the intellectual property, and it's a good conversation coming off talking about Activision Blizzard and that stable of IP they have. Disney has the most valuable long tail collection of entertainment inter- intellectual property on earth it's and it's not even close right in terms of what they they own and then you think about i push
1: back on disney or uh, with nintendo I, i'd make an argument but that's a, that's something okay you know
2: what day. that's that's fair i think that's i think that's but i think you could argue that it is one of the most right and yeah. it's it's certainly in that conversation and but then you think about the way that it monetizes them and everything that's going on with, with linear tv right? That's a business that's in decline. Sports content is so important. ESPN has been such a cash cow. But again, because of what's happening with linear linear TV, its ability to monetize that is absolutely getting shredded. Think about movie properties and everything that's happening with the domestic box office is a challenge. China's growing like crazy and that's an opportunity. But it just, so thinking through like all of these different ways that they monetize that stuff and I'm sure there's a lot of people, myself included, that are questioning have we just overvalued what it's really worth? Sure, you can say it's one of the most valuable on earth, but are we hedging too much on that? And then I think about Iger and thinking about what he accomplished and like the lightning in a bottle of his time with Marvel and Pixar and. You well, know, ESPN was before that, but he was there, but it was before he was the CEO. And, and all of those, those those roll-ups that happened that, were, that generated the seven or eight year period of incredible, incredible returns, right? And then he walks out the door after the Fox acquisition, which is pretty clearly an overpay and also acquiring some assets that may be, same thing, great assets, but maybe they're just, we've all overestimated what they're worth. All, all of that to say- the idea that Iger's magic is going to be back. He's going to fix the operations. He's going to get the company pointed back in the right direction. And if you look at any of other seven year period, hat tip to Tyler Crow, by the way, for sharing this with me. If you look at any other seven year period in Disney's history as a public company, it's never really been a market beating stock. It had a good like seven year run.
0: That's it. That's it. Interesting. Interesting Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Matt, any thoughts on Disney? Well, that good seven-year run was mostly under Iger. Uh, I'll say that much. Right. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's historically been a bad move to bet against Disney. Not that it will necessarily outperform the market over long periods of time. It's generally done. A, it's it's a mistake to bet against Disney's ability to monetize its IP. Um, and I I. Love Iger's track record of not necessarily innovation, but of finding the best opportunities at attractive prices. He was the one who um, presided over the Pixar acquisition. The it was Lucasfilm was an Iger idea. Um, he was the one who started Disney Plus. Like the, that was his his brainchild. It was poor execution under the subsequent leadership that that really derailed it. If in my opinion, um, I. I Think this theme parks are a big underappreciated area um J- jason was at disney world i know not that long ago and he could yeah. probably confirm this disney could be twice the size disney world could be twice the size and still be full yeah um they could charge twice as much and still fill up their existing parks i don't think they've maxed out the theme parks yet there are a lot of plans to build on the theme parks in coming years I think that's a big underappreciated part of the business, um, regardless of what happens with streaming. And I think they will figure out streaming. So Disney's the one that I wanted to chime in because it's the one I always get pushed back on whenever I include it in a YouTube video. Like you know, you'll see a list of comments that say I inc- I agree on everything but Disney, um, but I think Disney's going to surprise investors over the next decade or so. So can uh, I give you? Oh, go ahead,
3: Travis. I want to give you some numbers behind this because I, I think that some of what Jason said is not right. <laughs> uh, 1980 to 1990. This is not including dividends. Uh, Disney stock was up 900 percent. Uh, from 2010 to 2020, it was up 350 percent. I didn't add in the S and P total return. I assume that beats the market. Um, did not beat the market in the 90s and then the 2000s. Uh, the 90s, it was up 213 percent. I don't. I don't. I didn't pull the all the comparisons, but. What I think we need to look back on with Disney is understand that this is a very cyclical company, not only its returns and sort of the hits and misses of its studios, but also just the stock performance. I mean, a lot of Iger's success early in his tenure was just multiple expansion. Um, So a lot of times we, the narrative of the market becomes then the narrative of the company, whereas it should be the other way around. So I don't think there's any question that Disney Studios are in a lull right now for probably a number of reasons. Like you move into streaming, stuff changes, right? The stuff that worked at the box office doesn't necessarily work on streaming. The things that worked on, you know, Disney uh, Channel doesn't necessarily work. So you've got to kind of reconfigure and relearn what you're doing. And that may take a few years. Um, You know, the Pixar movies, I think, have been that, that's like a business that needs to just rethink itself uh, after the last last few movies. But we go through this over and over again. You know, if you look at the movies before, I think it was like Lion King was the first major one in their comeback in the 90s. Right. In the movie, the like five movies before that all were just disasters. And then the next five movies were icons. So. Disney does this, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. And right now I think Matt's, I would, I would lean towards Matt's direction that we're in a down point for a number of different reasons from the media landscapes to the studios. The parks are the, the rock solid core of Disney. They will have that forever. Nobody's building parks like that. Um, so I, I tend to take a long-term view and just say like, I'm hanging on to it. It's going to be a wild ride, but uh, but I think things are a little better than a lot of people think right
2: now. Has outperformed the S and P 500 for the past 23 years.
0: You're picking, has. It at, you're picking it at a low point. Yeah, there's maybe. there's also <laughs> uh, the, the reports that you, did you? I don't know if anyone saw the analyst report that that predicts someone was going to buy Disney. I think it was Apple. They, yeah. they specifically said. Does anyone think that that's an actual possibility? No.
1: I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I want to. Okay. So I think. We got a market cap today of 165 billion dollars. Yeah, they have some debt, so you add, you add back on as well. You know, the parks business, as Matt mentioned, I think, uh, well, a couple of you guys mentioned, is so profitable that a lot of the value in the stock right now is probably just betting on the parks business plus, you know, the other consumer product stuff. And it seems like investors are betting that or thinking that the streaming business is really not going to be that good for them. What? <sighs> You know, Matt. Maybe Matt. What, what changes for the streaming business to get it to profitability? How how do they get there? What's your thoughts as someone that follows the company closely?
0: I, I think they don't need to invest in, as much in new content as they have been. First of all, I think that between one the existing IP they have, you know, the, all, everything they've made so far, and what they're already making to put out in, the, in theaters, you know, that's almost enough to sustain Disney Plus by itself. I think it was they invest over invested in content. Um, number one, and number two, it, it now that they're in, they're kind of done the ramp up phase. Um, they can scale back. I mean, I I hate to, for people to lose their jobs, but they can scale back how many people it takes to run Disney Plus once now that it's 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 scale up phase is done. One of my neighbors actually is a Disney Plus engineer, so he tells me that you know they have more people than they need. <laughs> so um, I I think that. You know, it's it's really an efficiency question and using what they already have to better advantage. Um, you know they they could use the streaming as a complement to the other parts of their business better, like the parks especially. Um, if you go and you know you just want to walk through of Disney World before you get there, so you know where everything is that doesn't exist yet. It could be more of a complement to what Disney already has going on. Um, so I, I think that the streaming is uh, has a it's early in its evolution.
1: Yeah, they could do the bundle stuff that people talked about giving discounts on cruises and stuff like that i think one thing that comes to mind is and maybe anyone can hit this because me and ryan talk about this from time to time and we really don't know what's going to happen what is the end state of espn
3: that's a massive question but I, I, I want to cover what you and I
2: talked about that, right? As yeah, far as like, we, we, we talked, talked about, about this. sports, I, I, it's tough. Like I think so the entire economy of sports is going to change over the past decade. Th- there's a couple of things in, in
3: sports ties into this, but advertising is something that has effectively not been turned on yet at most of the Disney properties. And this is a company that should be able to monetize just as effectively, if not more effectively than Netflix. And Netflix said that their advertising service was making so much money that they were, they were just like, ah, we, you know, what we need to increase our prices because this advertising business is so good. Um, you know, you talked about bundling the apps together. They're supposedly gonna do that by the end of this year. The sports business is one where the more that I think about this, the more like almost confused I get because. The old world is not going to exist in 20 years, but are we going to go down a path where if I want to watch an NBA game, I have to sign up for the NBA app and then pay whatever. I don't think that makes any sense. So the question is who rebundles this And the only company that makes sense is ESPN and Disney. I mean, you could argue like the, the TNT, um, that's in the time Warner business, but they don't have the financial wherewithal to be able to do that right now. So I still think all of these things, again, we talk if we talk about like the smiling curve, there ends up being these big companies on one end and these small companies on the other. And Disney in both sports and streaming, I can't see a world where they're not one of the big companies, along with Netflix when it comes to streaming or you know, uh theme parks. You talk about like Universal is really their only competitor there. So I think as as we Mature, Jason is right. We don't know what sports is going to look like, but I think that everybody at Disney, including Bob Iger, knows this has to make financial sense for us. We can't bankrupt ourselves by keeping the NBA. So there's gonna be a lot of give and take there because if we learned with this Diamond Sports deal, right? Just because you say you're gonna write a big check doesn't mean that you're gonna actually fulfill that if your business goes under
4: i think yeah i think that's a really good point travis because this is where the bundle becomes so important in my opinion where you could lump in espn disney plus hulu um because sports rights on their own are not that attractive from the streaming perspective you look at fubo Basically, I forget where I was where I read it, but you're you're essentially just paying upfront this big risk for league rights. And then at the end, if you get any margin out of it, you when you renegotiate, they take that margin back and it's probably more competitive the next time around. Um, trying to, you know, other companies are going to bid for that same those same rights. So on its own, it's not that attractive. But if you can use it as sort of a loss leader within a more profitable ecosystem, something like what Disney has, where if Disney's traditional IP is really profitable. You could you can afford to run some losses through ESPN, but you're going to make it up um, by by adding them to the uh, bundle as a whole. So uh, the only problem now is that they can't really afford to. Well, maybe they could, but they can't really afford to use sports as a massive loss leader if Disney Plus is also losing money um, and they're pouring money into that. So I, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of a tough puzzle. Or it's a it's a tough investment because I don't know where Disney Plus or Disney ends up in the streaming world, and it seems like that's where everyone's heading. And it just feels like it's more competitive for content, more costly. Just but real quick. I could, but the parks is wonderful, so I could see the other side of
2: it. The ecosystem piece. I just just a couple words on that because I think that's the key. Because if you think about linear TV. It, it's the same thing. It was all about building a large network and keeping people in the ecosystem if you were Comcast or whoever, right? Exactly the same thing. And sports is big enough in the aggregate that ESPN made sense because they did have a bunch of NBA games, a bunch of baseball games, college sports. like all They had all of that stuff. And it's across enough people that are of the right demographics that you have to do it, right? So it's different now because- that meant that you could kind of hide the money across people that were uninterested too. And that gets harder, right? That's the thing that gets really, really harder for the Amazons of the world to do is they're building out their ecosystems because then they start all the the sports stuff as we've we seen with like F1 and with, with soccer, with, you know, with uh, Apple, you start all la it. And all of a sudden the value of an ESPN where you have all the sports gets cut down right so you don't have that the, the sum of the parts is greater right or it's actually greater than the sum of its parts i guess is the thing about an espn and what i'm really interested to see is what are the implications for the bigger sports um out there like baseball right where you know that the these league deals are such a big part of of, of the total revenue pie that how is it going to affect their ability to maintain the contracts that we've seen for players. You know, you got a guy up for half a billion dollars for a 15-year contract. What's that going to look like nine years from now if the revenue picture has changed? Because baseball isn't now being subsidized by every other sport. that's also being subsidized by people that just want cooking channels, right? So it's, 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 it's definitely in the too hard pile for me. Travis?
3: I, w- I want to add one thing. This is, this is what I think Bob Iger should lead with with the negotiations with all of these mm-hmm. leagues. You are maximizing your revenue by taking the biggest check. You're maximizing your revenue from older viewers and you're losing younger viewers. Baseball, I mean, good example. Baseball, perfect example. NBA doing the same thing. Yeah. Why is F1 popular? It was on Netflix, <laughs> right? Every, like hundreds of millions of people have Netflix. What do kids watch? Disney Plus. My daughter knows two words when when we pull out the ipad because we're going in the car or something netflix and disney netflix doesn't seem interested in sports she knows disney if disney has the attention of the next generation of viewers that has to be part of your calculus if you're the sports leagues okay one more question
1: uh this is from kelly again so thank you kelly for the uh, good comments here We'll maybe start with Matt and go around with everyone, because I'm really interested to see. This is kind of a speculative question, uh, and I don't think any of us know the exact answer, but here's the question. Do you guys see Disney Plus possibly merging, I think it means kind of Disney as well, with other streaming platforms in a combined effort like Paramount Plus or the Warnerboro Discovery stuff? Uh, Maybe, Matt, what do you think?
0: Not really I could see Disney potentially selling off the streaming business as a separate thing. I think that's more likely than Disney being acquired in its entirety. Um, like for example, I could see Apple buying Disney plus or something like that um, I, I you know essentially Apple's selling that part of the business and licensing their content at the same time um, but no, I don't really see them merging with another streaming service. Disney's winning the streaming wars when it's coming to when it comes to, you know, subscription momentum and how, ma- how many people consider it an essential service. I could cancel five other streaming services before my kids would let me cancel Disney+. Plus. Um, it's a lot of American households consider it a, a, an essential. Um, and I I don't think that they're going to, the only company that maybe is beating Disney is is Netflix. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think they're going to merge with, you know, what I would consider one of the smaller and, you know, number three or number four streaming businesses.
3: Okay. Travis, any thoughts, any other thoughts on that? No, I don't, I don't think they're going to, um, merge with anybody or partner with anybody. I think all of those other streaming services, the Peacocks, uh, even max are probably just going to go away. Um, but they're just going to crush them. And your sign there is that, uh, Time Warner Discovery is now selling some of its content to, I believe it was Netflix. They signed a a deal a week or two ago, or or maybe that was just rumored. But where we're moving is there's going to be a platform companies. So Netflix, I think we put Disney in there. Maybe one other one emerges. You know, maybe like Apple just spends enough money to be one of these platform companies. And then there's going to be content companies. And that's gonna be the two ways to be profitable. You don't wanna be stuck in the middle. To just plug my, you know, I did a deep dive on Sony on asymmetric investing. And that was literally part of the thesis was they have already decided we're not building a streaming service. We're not wasting our time with that. We're just gonna be a content company. we're happy to take the biggest check from Netflix or Disney, whoever whoever has the most subscribers and can and pay us the most money for what we have. So I think that's the way it's gonna move. And I think Disney stays one of the winners in, in streaming. Okay. We have, Another
1: fun topic. I think Matt will enjoy this one. Um, and I think everyone will too, because uh, everyone has housing, uh, I guess, on the mind. Uh, I'm going to share something with everyone. I think people have seen something like this from time to time. This is from a tweet uh, from Nick Gurley. And it basically shows... Can everyone see this? Yeah. All right. It looks at <clears throat> basically mortgage rates. So the cost of you know getting your loan for... I think it's this could be commercial, but again, you could I, I think it's for like a the buildings or really anyone that's trying to, you know, rent out something as an investment. And then we have the cap rate of those, you know, basically the the return or the the earnings yield you're getting on say what you're buying. And typically, you know, the cost to your debt has to be below the cap rate or else you're not earning anything. But recently, since mortgage rates have spiked we're seeing this across you know, a lot of residential, all, all this sort of stuff. And we can t- talk about this as a broader housing discussion. It's The mortgage rates are above the cap rate. And from my point of view, as someone that doesn't follow the industry too closely, this seems grossly unsustainable. So maybe, I don't know, Matt, he, he, you sound like you want to hop in here. Any, any thoughts on this dynamic and
0: how it might change? Yeah, this whole time I've been saying, let's get to real estate, let's get to real estate, let's get to real estate, here we are. So, um, no, that, that cap rate, I'm pretty sure refers to residential for the most part. Yeah. Um, it, I don't think it's sustainable. You're starting to see cap rates come up, especially in other types of commercial properties. And as the, the key is, when is the debt coming due? Commercial properties are financed differently than residential in that um, companies, if you buy an office building, for example, you'll get a loan that's a 10-year interest-only loan that at the end of the 10-year term, you intend to refinance. Um, So you're seeing a lot of this debt starting to come due and people are gonna have problems because one big thing to know, you had the cap rate right there. Cap rate and property value have an inverse relationship. So as cap rates start to come up, which they are um, in pretty much everything but residential real estate, Property values are going down, and it's going to be tougher and tougher for companies to refinance their debt. No one's going to refinance a hundred million dollar loan on an office building that's only worth sixty million. So you're going to have a lot of kind of strategic defaults, like you saw in the residential market in two thousand eight or so, and that's where the real like crisis is right now. That, that cap rates are coming up, which is good if you're an investor if you have money to invest because you're right. Your cap rate has to be less than your cost of financing for it to make sense, or it has to be greater than the cost of financing for it to make sense. Um, if I can borrow money at seven percent and get a five percent yield by investing it, it doesn't make sense to borrow money to invest. So, it, you're you're seeing a lot of pain coming in the in these markets, but a lot of opportunity as well for the companies that for example, can self-finance. A lot of my favorite uh, real estate investment trusts right now are the ones that you know, have a billion dollars on their balance sheet and can finance their own development projects. That's a big competitive advantage in this market. When, when money's free, no, it doesn't matter who has a well-capitalized balance sheet because you can borrow money for next to nothing and build a property and make money on it, et cetera. But if, you, if money's expensive like it is now, the companies that have that financial flexibility and have very low leverage, you know, have room to absorb the, the higher cap rates on their balance sheet without having to, you know, go bankrupt or, or give, give some of their properties back to the bank. Um, it's a huge competitive advantage. So there's a lot of pain and a lot of opportunity at the same time. All right, Jason, anything to add?
2: Yeah. So first thing, commercial real estate, residential real estate. These are all gigantic catchphrases to talk about really a lot of different things. I think that's super duper important. And you kind of hit it off uh, on the head there. That chart was maybe talking about residential, but the situation with residential, there's no inventory of single family, right? We're seeing record levels of building um, from single family and multifamily construction. Like we're basically, the, I think the records were in October, November of 2022. The, the current build levels are only behind those record levels because they're, they're just, there's there's no inventory being listed for sale of existing family homes. So you could ar- we can argue all day about, well, maybe there's a bunch of property that's eventually going to go out. But a lot of it is like just where stuff is. You know, the sunbelt's really hot. There's not enough inventory in the sunbelt, right? And th- there might be inventory in other places of potential, but it's just, it's not there. Where the pain is going to be happening is largely going to be in commercial office, Right and we've seen public REITs, the prices have come down a lot already. So there there are opportunities for investors like Matt was talking about, where the pain is happening is mostly gonna be in privately owned real estate, okay? Public REITs front run that. We've known for a year there was gonna be pain coming because the smart money already sold out of the REITs where there was gonna be trouble, but those private REITs are not liquid, right? So they're the ones that are gonna struggle. And thinking about where to avoid the risk, There's a lot of regional and smaller banks that own a lot of that commercial office space debt. You know, if there's, it's, it's in the little town in the mid market that the local bank financed the commercial office building. It's not B of A or one of these other big ones. So I think that's a really important way to think about it. And then there's some other really good commercial real estate, like industrial real estate. We talk about Amazon, right? Think about everything that they're doing Uh, with e-commerce. There's massive demand on, you know, um, uh, Onshoring of, of manufacturing and assembly, right? So all of those things. So it's really easy to put real estate in this big bucket and it's not. It's a bunch of little buckets. Actually, it's a bunch of big buckets. Ryan, you had a question?
4: Yeah. I, I've heard people mention that inventory is really low and homes available for sale or for single family homes are is, is kind of towards a record low. But part of me thinks, okay, maybe there's a shortage, but the other part of me thinks, well, maybe it's the fact that. No one wants to sell their home because they were getting quotes at higher prices a year ago, or their neighbor sold their home a year ago for twenty percent more than their house would be worth, and they, they don't want to take the the pride knock, or, or or maybe they don't want to have to purchase a new home on the current mortgage. So I guess, uh, what's like, I don't know. Do you think that 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 invent or that new supply that's coming online is going to be able to kind of buoy prices, or do you think that prices yeah. have to come down if rates are staying this high?
2: We've we've, we've already seen um, we've already seen the 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 bottom. I think with with new new construction, um, it's already started to pretty much stabilize and recover. So, um, and one of the reasons that's happened is be, it's it's not perfect. And again, we're talking on a national basis; it's different from market to market. And part of that is because when we we saw buyers or we saw builders start to back off a ton. Um, when interest rates started to shoot up. They pulled way back because they were expecting an utter collapse. There was a pause and then demand has started to recover. So they're like, okay, well, we got to go back out there because demand is still there. The industry is cyclical. Who knows exactly what's going to happen? And Ryan, I think part of the answer to your question is, sure, there's some of that. There's some of it that are potential sellers that have flexibility that are like, well, let me hold for a better price. <clears throat> but eventually life has to go on, Right. Um, so I think we're going to see life go on for a lot of people and the, the the time to sell is going to be when you have to, to sell. But I think the biggest thing that we don't, that doesn't get enough attention is the, the, on the residential side, new household formations, right? There was a lot of household formation that there wasn't enough inventory to meet it over the past 12 or 13 years. You know, we just didn't see a lot of single family home construction from 2010 through 2018 right? And they, 2017, 2018, they started to ramp back up. So there's a massive amount of underbuilding to fill just that, that cohort of, of household formation that's happening right now. Um, but again, it's a really local thing. So it's, there's no easy, simple answer.
3: I have an unpopular opinion here, but I think that everything that you guys are saying is right. And the answer is that we're going to have to inflate our way out of this and what i mean by that is valuations spiked from what 2019 to 2022 maybe you refinanced like we did in 2020 and now i have a 2.8% interest rate or whatever it is and so i have no real incentive to sell so you're you're holding on to that asset a little bit longer because you you, you can't just replace it with
2: It would literally cost you money to buy a house that costs the same amount.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And so the answer is that, yes, in my mind, and even in the market's mind, my home is overvalued today. We could sell it for probably an abnormally high amount of money if we were just sort of to reset all the value of housing. But over time, that will normalize. And this happened during the great financial crisis. I mean, the only thing that really, really got hammered was was condos, because there was a ton of people speculating on a, on a bunch of those things. Um, I know that happened here in the Twin Cities. But, you know, housing just kind of, it it like did this wave thing. And then it just started to rise again, because, you know, interest rates were low, the economy went on. But it just took a long time for valuations to kind of normalize from abnormally high to like, okay, this is fine. And I think that's where we're going to be over the next decade. You know, 3% inflation means that, the value of your dollar, your home, if it just follows inflation, is going to go up about 30 35% over the next decade. Well, if your value is 35% overvalued now, maybe your value of your home is just flat for the next 10 years. That's what I mean by inflating our way out of this.
4: I've got a question. And I I think Travis bring up an interesting point there. But um, And I think part of it is maybe that Brett and I are just non-homeowner haters. And so we're just like waiting and we're like, oh yeah, prices are definitely going to come down. But uh, I guess I have a question on the commercial side of things. Um, I've seen this floated around a lot and it seems like it's mostly speculation that occupancy rates are down, refinances are coming as Matt just mentioned. Um, I guess who's the loser in this scenario, aside from the people that borrowed a bunch of money? for these commercial properties is it are the banks in trouble do the banks sell these through to like uh, package them in mortgage backed securities like who if there's some big commercial real estate crisis who are the big losers
0: you're absolutely right. It's the banks, um, the, the, specifically the regional banks that have a lot of commercial real estate debt. Yep. The big banks generally don't have a lot of exposure to commercial real estate, and if they do, it's a manageable amount with their just given their capital requirements and things like that. Um, but you know, there's there's that old saying: if you owe the bank a hundred dollars, you have a problem. If you owe your bank a billion dollars, they have a problem. Have a problem, yeah. um, And that's really what's going on here. Um, one kind of interesting thing on on offices, especially because that's really where the problem is. I interviewed uh, Willie Walker from Walker and Dunlop the other day, and hi, it's his opinion that the way out of this is on a massive scale office to residential conversions. Yeah. It solves the problem of, of rising home prices to, to some degree because it, it adds more supply to the market. It solves the problem that we have millions of square, foot, square feet of excess office space mm-hmm. in our in our urban areas. Now, it's not practical to convert every single office building to a residential property, that's just not pro- not possible in a lot of cases. Um, you need a you know a lot of plumbing infrastructure that isn't you know isn't there in some of these high rises, for example. Um, but it's a really interesting possibility. And the more I think about it, the more I think he's right that that it's going to kind of force the hands of of these real estate companies, especially when they you know these properties fall into foreclosure and have to get sold to developers for pennies on the dollar then it might actually make economic sense to do it because right now it doesn't. And that's the big holdup to office to residential conversions is that it's not financially practical in a lot of cases. Willie but,
2: Walker's dog I mean, in this fight, by the way, I think is important. They, they mainly do multifamily um, housing finance, right? So he has a very vested interest in that. I want to share it just real quickly. This is really important. It goes back to the past topic. I just, I think it's really important to hammer home the difference in housing and the financial crisis and the housing bubble there and where we are now. So this is, just, this is just housing completions, okay? This is new construction completions. This is what happened leading up to the housing crisis before the global financial crisis. This is the extreme overbuilding, okay? This is where we are now. We are, we're back to 2002 levels of, of construction. This is how much we underbuilt, Okay. I really wanna stress that because this is a very different environment when it comes to single family residential properties than we've ever been in. And I think it's also important to point out that on the commercial side, we don't have that same dynamic, right? It's not that leveraged like we saw with single family housing, that it can cause that sort of damage to the economy, right? I think it's gonna be far more limited.
1: But Let me uh, let for the listeners let me describe the chart since a lot of people didn't see that or won't oh, they won't oh see yeah that.
2: that you know the charts work really well for podcasts. I'm really yeah good so
1: before that. before the GFC there was like 2 million homes or we kind of hit like a 2 million home well, rate per one year and half right or one and a half or no it was
2: no yeah, oh, sorry, sorry it was 2 million, million. yep yep
1: then okay. after the GFC or you know, when the housing bubble burst we collapsed down to 500,000 and now we're climbed back up to 1.5 million so we're not nearly we were, but we still are recovering from a gr- long period of, what would probably seven to eight years. Seven of years of
2: s- extreme underbuilding, and the first yeah. few years of that, more houses were actually being. If you took in the houses that were actually being leveled, the net inventory in the U.S. went down for two years. Yeah, it was extreme. Yeah.
1: And on the yeah, on the the office to residential. I mean, that's such a interesting topic because we're from Seattle, and it seems like that's the only way the downtown gets saved.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I want
3: to I want to respond to that because I, I somehow I ended up in real estate Twitter. Um, I follow some people who are local here who are developers and and so I get a lot of like smart real estate people uh, see what they're thinking and this has been a topic and to a person and this is by the way this is in their financial interest to say like yes great I will be that developer. They're all just like it doesn't work it doesn't work like there may be a project here or a project there. Yeah. But like you talk about like they need to make some plumbing changes. You're talking about instead of one big pipe running up, running up to, you know, next to the elevator, now we have to have 50 different pipes because every single, you know, unit has to have water and, you know, their their own multiple toilets. And the, the cost to reconfigure a building from commercial to residential is so astronomical that it doesn't make sense just generally, especially when interest rates are what they are right now. So I just want to, I want to push back on that. It's a great thought. It's a great idea. Reality is different.
4: They can just sleep in the cubicles, Travis. It's it's fine.
3: (laughs) My, My thought is that it might be
1: cheaper than having your office sit empty forever though. Cause I think there might be no other option than to, maybe if like Matt mentioned, they have to go through bankruptcies basically. And then they come out the other side. I don't, there's just this this space if it's empty isn't that just worse or is it or is it more expensive to to go through the rebuild maybe I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on that this is just from a pure outsider perspective
2: Sounds bullish for the Culligan man to me that's that's the... <laughs>
3: <laughs> Culligan man always wins there
4: you go Okay we have 2 minutes um before we shut this thing off so I guess earning seasons right around the corner I've got a couple companies that I
1: Pepsi see just today, yeah. Pepsi kicked it off today. With the, what, about, the what about you
4: guys? Is there anything that you're watching closely? Is there any? Is there anything where you feel like this earnings season's a really important one uh, for any companies you own?
2: Let, Regional let banks.
4: Ask.
2: Yeah. Re, okay. Go back. Yeah. No, go back. Yeah. Go back. Yep. Regional banks. I agree. Yeah. I
0: no, agree no you had a good one too there, but I, I, yeah. two in particular I'm watching are Truist and US Bank, yep. um, just because they are the ones that shouldn't have been affected by anything, but their stock price makes them look like they were. Yeah. just because of how big they are. So those are two in particular I'm, I'm really watching.
2: Yeah. I'll say Lemonade again, just real quick, seeing them continue to, can they continue to bring that loss ratio down and actually prove that they can originate insurance at profitable levels? They do everything else great. If they can do that, great. They have like $600 million in in, in force premiums. They are a tiny, tiny insurer in a trillion dollar industry. So if they can figure that out, this is a, an important quarter to show that.
3: All right. Um, Travis? I'm interested in looking at the entire auto industry's dynamics. I think the the transition to electric vehicles is happening, is real. But if demand for electric vehicles is growing 50% a year, but production is growing 100% or 150% a year, that doesn't make for good economics. And nice little capital cycle. Yeah. <laughs> that's and that's I think what we're seeing is that we may actually see really good earnings from the old legacy companies, the GMs, the Fords, and we may see terrible numbers from the Teslas and the Rivians and the you know the, these the stocks that have actually gone up a lot recently. So I'm really interested to see what that de- dynamic is because I'm trying to kind of suss out exactly what's going on. Companies aren't reporting their backlog anymore. Just ma- that just magically disappeared a couple a couple of quarters ago as Tesla started you know cutting their prices by ten thousand dollars a vehicle. So what is the actual financial metrics that w- we're going to have going forward? Because I don't all these companies that thought they were going to be 25% gross margin, it's not going to happen. All right. Ryan, what's
4: yours? I guess bridging the gap between Travis and Matt there, uh, I, I'm i eager to see Ally Financials. I mean, they're mm-hmm. one of the biggest auto lenders and it's such kind of a precarious spot where their assets are at now because it seems like it's priced as though people think there's going to be a big kind of implosion in the auto market. So. Uh, especially in the used car market so if there's if there isn't um or if we see some sort of stabilization in prices there it feels like Ally's in a good position but we'll we'll see
1: yep and i'll say i'm looking for forward to match group um so many variables affecting them right now and you know foreign exchange the rebuild of tinder all this stuff the new marketing campaign the the quote-unquote revamp they've given all these great data points uh, we'll see you know whether it actually improves for- their income statement
4: for eight quarters in a row, we've been saying, oh, if we just exclude foreign exchange, this this company's doing just fine.
1: Oh, they're going to, um, yeah, they're going to, I mean, hey, <laughs> it's actually a benefit now. So we'll see. But that's going to, we're one minute long. Uh, thank you to the three of you for joining us. Remember, it's in Alexandria, Virginia, August 18th. And it's called, oh, what is it Money called? Money Collaborative. Go to moneycollaborative.com.
2: Money. Sign up. Give us dollars Show up. We'll
1: put, we'll, put the link, <laughs> we'll put the link in the show notes. Let me put the disclosure in. Thank you all for everyone for listening. We are not financial advisors or Ryan and I are not financial advisors and anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you everyone for tuning in. These go live on Thursdays right around noon or 1230 Eastern time.